It is a joy to be with you this evening for another time of fellowship, prayer, and Bible study. As we begin our examination of the Word of God together tonight, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of James, James chapter 3. And as I mentioned well, just prior to our time of prayer, tonight's going to be the final lesson in the sixth section contained in the book of James, which deals specifically with the subject of how Christians are to model Christ-like conduct through speech. So as we prepare to dive into the passage that we'll be studying for the remainder of our time together tonight, let's begin by reading the totality of what James has penned in this section of his letter. So with that in mind, can I get a volunteer to read verses 1 through 6 of James 3? Harper has got his hand up. And can I get another volunteer to read verses 7 through 12 of James 3? And that's going to be... Mr. Michael Martin. So, uh, whenever you guys have those passages pulled up, Harper will take verses 1 to 6, and Michael will take verses 7 to 12. Not many should become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a mature man who is a who is also able to control his whole body. Now when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we also guide the whole animal and, and consider ships, though, the ver- though they're very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided with a, by a very small rudder. Wherever the small, where, wherever the will of the pilot di- directs, so too though the tongue is a small part of the body. It boasts great things. Consider how large a forest a small fire ignites. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness is placed among the parts of our bodies it pollutes the whole body sets the course on life of life on fire and is set on fire by hell for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been by by mankind but no human being can tame the tongue it is a restless evil to read. We now come to the fourth and final lesson in our study of the sixth section contained in the book of James. And as was the case with each of the previous sections, James is using this portion of his letter to function as a roadmap for the Christian life. With this purpose for the book of James in mind, we determined that its central theme could be summarized in this way. True saving faith will always be demonstrated through how we live. When surveying the sixth section of James's letter against the backdrop of its underlying theme, 
We could rightly say that this portion of the letter is stressing the relationship between saving faith and Christ-like speech. Or, if I could put it a different way, in keeping with the central theme of James's letter, true saving faith will always be demonstrated through our habitual pattern of speech. True saving faith will always be demonstrated through the habitual pattern of one's speech. That's the relationship between the main theme of the book of James and the central theme that we've been unpacking in this sixth section. We have seen this connection developed by James in each of the previous lessons that we've devoted to the first eight verses of this chapter. And what was the specific approach that James used to tease out the connections between saving faith and one's habitual pattern of speech? Well, as we've noted in each of our previous lessons, James chose to highlight the connection between saving faith and one's pattern of speech. And he does so in the form of a warning. You see, for James, it is essential for Christians to have a sober-minded awareness of the temporal and eternal significance of human speech. Once a believer is aware of the drastic consequences that stem from how they use their tongue, they will inevitably begin to model Christ-like conduct through their speech pattern. By way of review, let's go over the first three warnings that we've analyzed so far in our study of this section before we turn to the final warning that James provides at the conclusion of this sixth section. In our study of verse 1, you should see these headings included in your handouts. In our study of verse 1, we observed James's warning about the tongue's condemning power. A warning about the tongue's condemning power, particularly with reference to those who would serve in positions of spiritual authority in the local church. In our study of that preliminary verse, we were confronted with the reality that all who would ever teach God's word will be held to a higher degree of accountability before their holy creator. And as such, we discovered from verse 1 that nobody should ever become Bible teachers with a flippant or a nonchalant attitude. On the contrary, Bible teachers should be those who have been called and gifted by God to teach, and they should be those who have been tested and affirmed as sound Bible teachers by the local church. This first warning set the table for what James offers in his second warning that we observe from chapter 3. And as you'll see in your handouts, that second warning provided by James in this section of his letter stemming from verse 2 through the first half of verse 5, was summarized with this heading. The tongue's controlling influence. The tongue's controlling influence. Again, verse 2 through the first half of verse 5. As we saw developed by James in those verses, we learned that a distinguishing mark of spiritual maturity is the ability for one to control the tongue as a habitual pattern of life. As the trajectory of one's life, an inevitable mark of spiritual maturity is seen in exercising self-control over one's tongue. According to James, if a person is not able to exercise control over their tongue, then there will be at least two realities observable in their life. First, reality number one, the person who cannot exercise control over their tongue will inevitably be controlled by the tongue. Just like a bit controls the direction of a horse and 
just like a rudder controls the direction of a ship, so also can the tongue, and so also will the tongue control the course of a person who can't exercise control over it. That brings us to the second reality that we saw from verse 2 to the first half of verse 5. Reality number 2, the one who cannot control their tongue will likewise not be able to control the sinful lusts and the sinful desires that plague or fallen human nature. In this sense, the tongue can boast over its ability to steer and direct the trajectory of a person's life. Ultimately, in the final analysis, much of our battle in sanctification, much of the battle that you and I are going to face in our spiritual pilgrimage in this life can be boiled down to our ability to exercise control over our speech pattern. Show me a person's ability to control their tongue, and I'll be able to tell you much about what their lifestyle looks like. James continues his masterful instruction developed in the first four and a half verses of chapter 3 to provide us with the third warning that we find in this section. During our previous study of this portion of James's letter, stemming from the second half of verse 5 on to the end of verse 8, we saw a warning about the tongue's corrupting nature. A warning about the tongue's corrupting nature. When considering the biblical and the historical evidence about how human beings have used their tongue, we discover that it is utterly impossible for the tongue to be perfectly tamed by mankind. So James goes from verse 2 to the first half of verse 5 to say that control over the tongue is a mark of spiritual maturity. That is, if the trajectory of your life manifests control over your pattern of speech, you're a spiritually mature person. But then he follows that up with this third warning by saying, hey, but just so you realize, even those who are going to have spiritual mature lives, even those who are going to be able to exercise a lifestyle pattern of control over the tongue, those people are still not going to be perfect in their attempts to do so. You see, by virtue of humanity's fall into sin, the struggle to exercise perfect control over one's speech pattern is a struggle that will be shared by both Christians and non-Christians for the totality of their time here on this earth. And James's point in offering this warning at this stage in chapter 3 was simply to notify his original readers and us by extension that there needs to be a realistic perspective about the continual battle we're going to face with regard to the tongue. Although Christians will certainly exercise a lifestyle pattern of being able to model self-control over what comes out of their mouth, make no mistake about it, there's going to be failures and there's going to be shortcomings from time to time. This reality not only magnifies the glory and the riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it also should motivate us as Christians to press on in our efforts to master how we use our tongue in this life. That's the effect that that warning should have on us who are believers. And for the case of the unbeliever, the reality of the never-ending struggle over our tongue should lead the unbeliever to flee to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Since it is impossible for any sinner to model perfect control over their pattern of speech, since it is only through faith in Jesus Christ that can enable any person to be forgiven of their sins, and since it is only by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit that can allow anybody to experience progressive victory over their speech pattern, 
for the unbeliever's only hope is to surrender themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. These are the first three warnings communicated by James, and that allows us to segue quite marvelously into the fourth and final warning we find in this section, the fourth warning as found in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 3. As you'll see in your handouts, I've chosen to associate this final warning with the following subheading. Again, you should find this in your handouts. Warning number four, verses 9 to 12 of chapter 3. A warning about the tongue's contradicting tendencies. Say that five times really fast. A warning about the tongue's contradicting tendencies. As we're going to find over the course of tonight's study, by way of warning, James is desiring to educate his original audience about the tongue's contradicting tendencies. And to accomplish this objective, James systematically unfolds this particular warning from two distinct vantage points. Each of those vantage points are encapsulated in your handouts, and they're likewise going to function for our outline over the rest of our time together this evening. The first vantage point that James provides is portrayed in verses 9 and 10, and when we examine that preliminary vantage point, we're going to be doing so under this heading. The tongue's contradicting tendencies stated. The tongue's contradicting tendencies stated, verses 9 and 10 of James 3. And then secondly, that second vantage point that James details here at this stage of his letter, is found in verses 11 and 12. So vantage point number two, going to be characterized under this heading. The tongue's contradicting tendencies illustrated. The tongue's contradicting tendencies illustrated as found in verse 11 and verse 12 of chapter 3. With this working outline at the forefront of our minds, let's now begin our examination with that preliminary vantage point. Vantage point number one, the tongue's contradicting tendencies stated. Notice verses 9 and 10 again with me in your copy of God's Word, and we'll begin unpacking what James writes from this point of view. Verse 9 and following says this, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. There are numerous terms that we need to find in order to understand what James is emphasizing in both of these verses. First, I think we can all agree that the terms Lord and Father are in reference to God. The immediate context in which these terms are used, in conjunction with the contrast that James is setting forth clearly in verses 9 and 10, make this interpretation quite clear for us here. Yet before we move on any further, I want us to reflect on a very important observation that James makes here in reference to the Most High. Did you catch it in our reading of the text? Notice this. For the believer, God is both Lord and and Father. Stated differently, Christians are to recognize God as their Lord just as much as they are to recognize God as their Father. If we were to survey the landscape of 21st century American evangelicalism, you'll find that the vast majority of self-identifying Christians have no problem in recognizing God as their Father. In fact, I would go so far as to say that there are few attributes that have been subjected to as much abuse and misrepresentation 
than that of the fatherhood of God. Look at the past century of American evangelicalism. This is one of the most abused and misrepresented aspects of God, namely His fatherhood. Take a look at social media, televised news, or just attend a popular Christian concert or conference such as Passion. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Many ways in which the fatherhood of God has been misrepresented and abused over the past century. You see, in our day, God is seen by many self-identifying Christians as a sort of cosmic Santa Claus. He's just waiting to shower us with health, wealth, and prosperity. All you need to do, says adherence to this false view of God, is ask in faith. And, and God's just waiting to bless you. For those of you here who are familiar with college and professional athletics, you'll find many athletes who often refer to God as the man above or the big man upstairs. Any of you guys ever heard that language allocated towards God or directed towards God? Yeah, many times, right? You see, when viewed from this perspective, God appears to be a fellow jock that cares more about success in sports than he does about personal holiness. Take a look at many famous megachurch pastors and self-identifying Christians who find themselves in such a context, and you'll hear things like this. God is the Father of all people, and for many who find themselves in such context, really the only attribute of God that anybody should care about is love. God is love, and He certainly is love, but of course, for those who hold to this perspective... Their idea of the love of God looks a lot more similar to a Hallmark movie than the description of love that we find in 1 Corinthians 13. This is an abuse. This is a misrepresentation of the fatherhood of God. Now, I know I've just spoken quite strongly about some of these abuses and misrepresentations. I don't want you to get me wrong with what I'm saying. It is very true that by His very nature, God is the Father of all creation. In fact, insofar that creation is the work of God's hand, it can also be said that He has fathered all that has come into existence. That's just a theological reality. But be that as it may, that's not the sense in which James is using the term Father here in verse 9. On the contrary, James is using this designation, Father, in the way that we find it being used in texts like John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Many of you guys are likely familiar with this passage. You've heard it recited by your pastor and Sunday school teachers many, many times in your upbringing. Listen to what the Apostle John writes in that text, verse 12 and 13 of the Gospel of John in the first chapter. He writes, But as many as received... Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, to them God gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see how John is using that designation of God's fatherhood in a very narrow and specific way? Here's the point. Anybody can claim that God is their Father, but in the final analysis, only those who God has sovereignly redeemed have the right to make such a claim. Only those who God has redeemed by His sovereign grace 
and has brought to the place of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone. Only they can regard God as Father. And this is the very way in which James is communicating this reality here at the outset of verse 9. This is the biblical connection of fatherhood that we need to make as we make our way through this portion of this warning. That brings us now to consider what James has in mind when he uses the designation of Lord in verse 9. The designation of Lord in verse 9 in relation to God. What does James mean when he refers to God as Lord? Well, the Greek word for Lord that James uses here is a term that simply means one who is in supreme authority. And this fits in quite well with the nature of God, does it not? I mean, think about this just logically speaking. Logically, if there is a God who's created all things, if he has the power and the wisdom to bring about all things into existence, then does it not necessarily follow that God would be the one in supreme authority over all he's created? I mean, if God's created all things, then he, by very definition, he owns all things, he resides over all things, all things that he's created belongs to him. And this is exactly what we see declared about God in both the Old and New Testaments. I want to bring your attention to two key texts, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, with regard to God's lordship. The first text from the Old Testament is found in Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 8. This is one of the most clear proclamations of God's lordship. And this comes directly from God himself. This is God's commentary. This is God's testimony about his own lordship that James is testifying to in verse 9 of chapter 3. Listen to what Isaiah records as being spoken from the lips of Almighty God. He writes, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. And there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. And let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or is there any other rock? And listen to how God concludes with that beautiful array of verses. He says, I know of none. In other words, I am the only God. I am the only Lord. I rule and reign over everything and every person. And it's against the backdrop of God's lordship being magnified throughout this Old Testament text and many others that we can likewise see this sentiment echoed in the New Testament. We find the New Testament declaring God's lordship in an abundance of texts. The text I want to bring your attention to, however, this evening is found in the Apostle Paul's sermon at Mars Hill in Acts 17. Acts 17 verses 22 to 31 is undoubtedly one of the clearest New Testament passages on the subject of God's lordship. But for the sake of time and for the sake of our immediate attention, I just want us to read verses 24 to 28 of Acts 17. Listen to Paul's testimony about God's lordship. And think about this against the backdrop of what God himself has said about his lordship 
as found in that passage in Isaiah 44. Here's Paul. He writes, well, he says, Luke writes it, um, the God who made the world and everything that is in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is God served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might feel around for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are His descendants. Do you see the point, my friends? As seen from these sample passages from both the Old and New Testaments, any understanding of God that does not recognize His Lordship is an unbiblical and Christian conception of God. And my friends, this error is running rampant in modern-day Christianity. Many would have God as Father, but they do not have God as Lord. He is not ruling and reigning over their life as evidenced by how they live. And that is an unbiblical, and I'll even go so far as to say an unchristian thought of God. As the one who is supreme in authority, God has the inherent right to rule over all creation. Therefore, every true believer... Every person who has been born again by the Holy Spirit will equally champion God's fatherhood as they do God's lordship. So, in order for us to understand the rest of what James develops in these passages, in this fourth and final warning in the sixth section of his letter, it's important for us to first have this right understanding of who God is. Because everything that James says from here flows logically and organically from the fatherhood and the lordship of God. And how is this seen from what James writes in verses 9 and 10? How is there a connection between a Christian's recognition of God as Lord and Father and the utilization of the Christian speech pattern? Uh, well, notice this. For the Christian who recognizes God as Lord and Father, notice this from the text, there is an organic connection between those recognitions on the one hand and how the Christian speaks on the other hand. Notice this. The Christian who recognizes God as Lord and Father will use their tongue to bless Him. Or to put it in a different way, all true Christians will inevitably use their tongue as a means to bless God or to praise God as their Lord and Father in heaven. It's interesting to note that the Greek word that James uses for bless here is the same word from which we get the English word eulogy. How many of you guys have heard of a eulogy before? Well, I know that if you've heard of this term before, this likely comes to your mind. When we think of a eulogy, we tend to think of it as something that is given at a person's funeral. We think of it as something that has an inherently negative connotation. But, my friends, the term eulogy simply means to speak a good word. As such, let me maybe change your perception on this particular term's meaning. Anytime you or I say anything positive about another person, 
We're delivering a eulogy on their behalf. We're delivering a good word on their behalf. So when viewed through the lens of Scripture and from our own experience as believers, it's impossible for a Christian to not deliver constant eulogies about God and about their relationship to Him. It is impossible for a Christian to not speak positively about their Heavenly Father and their Lord and Master in this life. When a sinner comes to the point of having their eyes open to the character of God, to the wickedness of their own transgressions committed against God, and to God's free and gracious offer of salvation to all who will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they not only respond in faith to those realities, but they respond in praise and thanksgiving. As stated by Douglas Moo in his commentary on the book of James, This activity of blessing in which the Christian praises and honors God is cited by James as the highest, purest, and most noble form of speech. You think about God in that respect when you render praise to Him? That for the believer, in a very real sense, ascribing praise and Blessing God with the lips. That should come as normal for us, His people, as breathing. And if we're honest with ourselves, believers and non-believers respectively tend not to have too much of a difficult time praising God or ascribing blessing to God. You might run into some ardent atheists and agnostics out there who never render praise to God. By and large, whether you're a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim or an adherent to some other world religion, they're going to have some working idea of the reality that they need to render praise and blessing to the deity or plurality of deities that they serve. So James takes this a step further. He wants to show us the warning that Christians particularly need to be aware of as they render praise and adoration to their Heavenly Father. And notice that in the second half of verse 9. Notice that concern that James writes right off the heels of this idea of blessing God. He writes this. He says, With the tongue we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. And if I could take Moose quote and turn it on its head a little bit, I think we could say it like this. If the act of blessing is the highest, purest, and most normal, or uh, most noble form of speech, if that's true about praising God and blessing God, then by contrast, by necessary consequences, the act of cursing is the lowest, filthiest, and most ignoble form of speech. When we look at the term that James uses here for cursing, it can be one of two ways. It can be used in one of two ways. Broadly, this term can be used to refer to wanting somebody to experience eternal condemnation, eternal damnation for their sin. That's the broad implication of this idea of curse. But it can even more narrowly refer to any abusive form of speech. So the more narrow form of this word refers specifically to abusive patterns of speech, and the more broad use of this word is just a curse regarding somebody being sent or subject to eternal damnation. If we look at this text and we look at the way in which James uses 
his letter to address his readers, I believe that it's most consistent and most logical to say that since James is writing to a group of self-identifying Jewish Christians that he personally knew, he most likely had the connotation of this word pertaining to a, to a curse in which abusive speech is being portrayed or being rendered to one's neighbor. Think about it this way, my friends. These were individuals who had made credible professions of faith, and James knew that they would not have engaged in the practice of wishing God's condemnation upon other people. Because such a practice, the, the practice of wanting other people to be cursed to eternal damnation, that's completely incompatible with the calling that Christ has given to his people to warn lost sinners of the judgment that awaits if they do not repent and believe the gospel. So with that in mind, be that as it may, James was well aware that these people, though they may not have been cursing people to eternal judgment and eternal damnation, these people still would have had difficulty exercising control over their pattern of speech. There would have been some contradicting tendencies present in their lives about how they use their tongue. So in context, the statements being made by James here in verse 9 and verse 10 really make perfect sense in light of what he just finished saying in verse 8. Remember back in verse 8 when James declared that no one can tame the tongue? Well, here's why it's consistent. Since it's impossible for sinful man to exercise perfect control over their tongue, even the godliest followers of Jesus Christ are still going to engage in a lifetime of battling against temptation to use their tongues in a manner that could bring harm to other people to render curses or abusive speech towards their neighbor. So for James, I think this is a contradicting tendency that he wants his audience and he wants all believers to be intimately familiar with. On the one hand, all genuine followers of Jesus Christ will ascribe praise and blessing to God with their tongue. So that's perfectly true. We can affirm that on the one side. But on the other all genuine followers of Christ are also going to occasionally use their tongue to say harmful things against their neighbor. And what's so bad about doing that? Well, as we see from the text here, our neighbors, our fellow humanity, they've been made in the likeness of God. Listen to how Anthony Hokema teases out this contradicting tendency in his masterful work created in God's image. You want to know why it's so wrong to render abusive speech towards your fellow neighbor? Hokum is going to answer that in this quote. He writes, in verse 9, James points out the inconsistency of which people are guilty when they use the same tongue to praise God and to curse men. Why is this such an inconsistency, asks Hokum. Well, he answers in this way. It's an inconsistency because the human beings whom we curse are creatures who have been made in the likeness of God. Therefore, to curse men means, in effect, to curse the God in whose likeness they have been made. Thus, it is inconsistent to praise God and to curse men with the same tongue, since the human creatures whom we curse bear the likeness of God. For this reason, Hokema concludes, God is offended when we curse men, or when we curse our neighbor, end quote. 
So this quote from Hokema in mind, is there any surprise that James concludes verse 10 by saying, my brethren, these things ought not to be this way? Shouldn't be any surprise to us based on the argumentation that Hokema has been unfolding up to this point. Or not Hokema, this, this is James's argument here. We just got done reading Hokema. It should be no surprise to us based on the argumentation that James has been unfolding here over the past several verses. Even though the image of God has been marred because of man's fall into sin, the image of God still remains in every person who has ever lived on this earth. And as such, because every person who's ever lived has been created in the image of God, that means that every human being has intrinsic value. Every human being deserves the utmost and highest degree of respect. It's for this reason that in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 to 40, our Lord Jesus Christ included loving our neighbor as ourselves as one of the greatest commandments because of the image of God. To be created in the image of God demands that human beings love each other and they are to love each other just as they love themselves. So application for you and for me tonight, in light of what James has warned us in verses 9 and 10, simply this. God commands His people to be equally zealous about blessing their fellow image bearers as they are about blessing God Himself. Let that sink into your soul. It's very easy for us as Christians, and by extension, it's very easy for adherence to other world religions to express praise and adoration to their conception of God or to their plurality of deities that they falsely worship. Anybody can praise God. Anybody can be passionate about that. But here's what James is saying. The believer, the true Christian, they're called to be just as diligent, just as passionate about blessing their fellow image bearers, blessing their neighbor, speaking forth good words to their neighbor as they do to Almighty God. And even though the Bible clearly teaches that none of us will ever do this perfectly in this life, this is to be the goal that we strive to model for as long as we have life to do so, to the glory of the triune God. Indeed, by God's sanctifying grace, may we be marked by those who manifest increasing victory over the tongues contradicting tendencies. So in our examination of verses 9 and 10, we have clearly seen the tongue's contradicting tendencies stated. As we now prepare to draw tonight's lesson to a conclusion, I want us to briefly survey the tongue's contradicting tendencies illustrated. The tongue's contradicting tendencies illustrated as found in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 3. Notice those verses again in this section. James writes the following in verses 11 and 12. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. As we can see from the contents of verses 11 and 12, James uses three rhetorical questions and one rhetorical statement to emphasize the point that he's just belabored in verses 9 and 10. 
Do you follow James's logic? For James, it's just as contradicting for a fresh water fountain to produce bitter water, for a fig tree to produce olives, for a vineyard to produce figs, and for a salt water sea to produce fresh water. It's just as contradicting for those realities as it is for Christians to render praise to God and curses to man from the same source. This is an illustration or an application of what James, what James has just developed in the previous two verses. By using these illustrations, James is pointing out that in the natural world, you can identify the nature of the source by the content of what is being produced. In the case of these illustrations, fresh water comes from a freshwater fountain. A fig tree produces olives. No, produces figs. A vineyard produces grapes. And a saltwater sea is going to produce salt water. Nothing in the natural world is produced that is contrary to its own kind. Like produces like, and kind produces kind. However, when considering the struggle that followers of Jesus Christ have against their tongue, we do find examples in which there is a contradiction between nature and that of which is being produced. Despite being justified by the sovereign grace of God, and despite being immersed into the process of sanctification, followers of Jesus Christ continue to commit sin with the tongue. As we've already discussed tonight, and as we've noted in our previous lesson, the struggle with our speech pattern is going to be experienced throughout the totality of our spiritual pilgrimage. And it's the reality of this struggle that should make us all the more grateful for the gospel, in addition to motivating us to fight against the contradicting tendencies of our tongue. In a nutshell, that's precisely why James concludes the sixth section of his letter with these illustrations. Did you notice that James doesn't provide his readers with any grounds to complain or to make excuses with their speech? You know, James could have done that. He could have said, well... This is going to be a lifelong battle with your tongue. You're not always going to be able to manifest perfect control over what comes out of your mouth. So just give up. You're, you're sinners, Jesus, and he saves you through the gospel. Let's just all give up. Let's just all complain about how hard it is to live in a fallen world. No, James doesn't do that at all, does he? You see, like the rest of the biblical authors, James was well aware that Christians would not go a day of their spiritual life without having to fight temptation, repent of sin, and be dependent upon God's sanctifying grace to make them who He has called them to be. So James knows this is going to be a struggle. I'm not going to give you opportunity to complain or to have the ability to make excuses. You need to get busy applying this teaching here. James is using these illustrations to motivate his readers, and they should be motivation to us as well. James is choosing to emphasize the reality of the tongue's contradicting tendencies in order to call his readers to a sober-minded awareness of what they will continue to battle against. And in doing so, he exhorts believers to press on in their fight to the glory of God. I love what George Stulock highlights in his commentary on these verses from James. Notice this. Stulock really gets to the heart of what James is saying here by way of motivation. This quote should also be in your handouts. 
Stulock writes, The message undergirding James's illustrations in verses 11 and 12 is very straightforward. Be aware of the tongue's contradicting tendencies and be diligent to fight against them. To the person who speaks praise to God in the worship service and then abuses people verbally at home or at work, James commands them, purify your speech throughout the week. Of the person who boasts, I'll always speak my mind no matter who gets hurt. James is not impressed. Rather, he commands such people, discipline your pattern of speaking. Of the person who says, well, I, I know I gossip too much, but I just can't help it. James still requires control your tongue. And Stulak continues, Of the person who is in the habit of speaking with insults and ridicule, James demands of them, change your speech. James expects discipline to be happening in the life of the Christian. And in conclusion, Stulak notes the following, there is no biblical justification for corrupt habits of speech, and there is no room for complaint or excuses. We must simply repent. End quote. My friends, as we saw noted by Stulock, and as you've heard me say many times in this section, particularly last uh, sermon we had in this sermon that we we're going through tonight, you need to think of the Christian life as a spiritual war. The Christian life is a spiritual war against the flesh, sin, and Satan himself. It's a battle that requires our maximum effort, but as we know from the Word of God, we have the Holy Spirit to supernaturally empower us to experience victory throughout the course of our fight. And we have the Holy Spirit by God's grace, to supernaturally enable us and equip us to confess our sin, to bear the fruit of repentance when we fall short of our efforts to wage war against our spiritual adversaries. God has given us the Holy Spirit to assist us in the spiritual war that we're going to engage in in this life until Christ returns or calls us home. And one of those most difficult battles will be against our pattern of speech, against our tongue and against its contradicting tendencies. So as Christians, we engage in the weighty task of fighting against our tongue. We engage in the task of fighting against the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the world, and the pride of life, and we even engage in the task of fighting against Satan and his legion of fallen angels. But we don't fight as those who are alone. Be comforted. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 to 17, says these words. I hope they will be of great encouragement to you. He writes, In Christ, believers have access to the full armor of God, so that we will be able to resist in the evil day and to stand firm. We are to goid our, or excuse me, we are to gird our loins with truth. We are to put on the breastplate of righteousness, to shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We are to take up the shield of faith with which we will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And we are to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. These are the weapons for the spiritual warfare that God has called us to engage in throughout the remainder of our Christian life. However long or however brief that might be, we're here to wage war. 
We're here to wage war against our tongues contradicting tendencies. We're here to wage war against the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the world, the pride of life. We're here to wage war against satanic forces. As we prepare to transition into our time of group discussion, my question for you and for me is simply this. Are you in the fight? Are you prepared for battle? Let's begin our group discussion on that note. You'll find the discussion questions contained at the bottom of page two in your handouts. And as always, really looking forward to hearing the insights that you have in regard to these questions. Very important concepts that we discussed over the course of tonight's lesson. Let's start with the first question. Question one. As believers, why is it so important to understand and champion the reality of God's Lordship? And in your experience, what are some ways that you've seen this aspect of God's character either neglected or undermined? So, start with that first question. Why do we need to understand God's Lordship? Why do we need to defend it or champion it, protect it? What do you guys think? grandfather, that's another uh, kind of, I mean, we laugh, but that the conceptions of God in so-called Christian circles in our day, they deserve to be laughed at. Frankly, it's not, it's not because we're like making fun of them that they're any lesser than we are. It's just like, just think about, like, if you didn't even have the Bible, let's just think about the concept of God. Immediately, you think of the highest possible being that could ever exist. Okay? Why would such a being be anything less than Lord? If that being has created all things, he owns all things. He is Lord. It's just his nature to be Lord. He's not like us. We're, I mean, I'm going to quote scripture even though I just said not to think about having scripture for a second. Scripture says that God is the potter, we're the clay. That's the analogies. I mean, the reality, like, we have such a tendency to think of God as just a bigger version of ourselves. And we kind of view God, even, like, even me sometimes, I kind of catch myself not having the level of reverence that I need to have for God. And it's like, the very concept of God demands lordship and in God's self-revelation that we find in the Bible, that's exactly what we get. He is Lord, He's Master, He's Ruler, He's Sovereign over all things. So it's very important that we keep that in mind. Okay, so does anyone else have any thoughts about this idea of Lordship? How many of you guys have heard the term Lordship Salvation? Show of hands. Okay, let me, let me get you guys into a little bit of, this is within the past 40, 50 years of church history. Um, I don't even think this is going to be any else study of forerunners of the faith that you're doing because it's so recent. But in the middle of the 1900s and really hit an apex in the 1980s, there was a movement in American evangelicalism 
called easy believism or antinomianism. The word antinomianism just means against God's law. Okay, like this idea that we, we have no place for God's lordship. We're saved by grace alone. And, you know, personal holiness, we don't really need to stress that because God is love. We're saved by grace. And, you know, stop being so legalistic and saying that we need to walk and live in a certain way as God's people. That really got a lot of traction in the middle to late part of the 1900s. And men like John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul came along and said, no, wait a second now. The Bible, yes, 100%. We're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, not by any work so that no man can boast. There is no amount of works that we could ever do to earn salvation or to bring a needy and perishing sinner to the point of deserving salvation. They championed all those things. But what MacArthur and Sproul and others did was they said, but God, he calls his people after being saved by his grace through faith in Christ alone. He calls his people to walk and live in a certain way. And even that passage in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that everybody loves to quote, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of works that no man can boast. It's the gift of God. Well, verse 10 says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. So God, in Titus 2, let me read you this passage while I'm on my little tangent here. I think it's an important tangent, a little bit of church history for you. And very recent church history. So recent, in fact, let me just go so far as to say this. So recent, in fact, that I would say this is one of the most significant errors in modern-day American evangelicalism. Easy believism. You'll find it all over the place to this day because of how close it's been. But listen to this. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, here it is, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. There is salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. But notice this last little clause, who are zealous for good deeds. Jesus saves sinners, not just to forgive them of their sins, as great as that is, not just to enable them to have a saving relationship with God, as great as that is, but His purpose for you and for me is that when He transforms us from the inside out, when we come to believe the gospel, Jesus begins to make us zealous for good deeds. He makes us want to live a life that will glorify Him and honor Him and put Him on display before watching world. And that's, again, why is James using the method of warning in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 3? He's wanting to motivate his readers. Listen, be aware of the danger that the tongue is going to be in your Christian walk. It can be a hindrance. It can lead to sin. It can lead to contradictions in your lifestyle. You need to be aware of that. You need to fight against it. 
You need to continue to pray for God to give you the grace and the ability to have victory over the tongue. But that's that relationship there. Again, God's grace and salvation by faith alone and Christ alone, those realities are what propel Christians into godly living. They motivate us. Because we're overwhelmed with gratitude for what God's done for us in the gospel. It's important to recognize that. But when I loved your feedback there. Um, you guys are probably a little bit young, but I'll ask the question anyways. It's there, second part of question one. Have you seen any real-world examples or illustrations, whether it be at school, family, wherever? Have you ever seen people who claim to be Christians but they have no desire to walk in purity of life. They have no desire to be, quote-unquote, as we saw from Paul right in Titus, zealous for good works. They say, yeah, I'm a Christian. They wear the cross around their neck. They've got the patch on their letter jacket. They tweet out verses or post them on Snapchat or Instagram. But if you look at their lifestyle, there's no evidence that, that they are surrendered to God's lordship. You all see that ever? Probably see it all the time. You know, that was me. I wore a cross growing up. I played baseball. I knew Philippians 4.13 and John 3.16, right? Yeah, God's love and God helped me perform to the best of my ability on this test or in this game. It was all about me. I, but outside of those little pithy Christian one-liners or, or those half-hearted prayers that I would render to God... I wasn't surrendered to his lordship. I was living for myself. I wasn't zealous for good works. I didn't care about the tongue's ability to control me or to corrupt me or to show a contradiction in what I said on the one hand and how I lived on the other. It never crossed my mind until God opened my eyes at the age of 17 and saved me from my sin. And then I progressively began to change my thought life began to change. My speech pattern began to change. My priorities began to change. That is what the Lordship of God will do. So, very, very crucial. Um, very, very crucial. Number two. Question two. This should be a relatively easy question. Why should it be the natural instinct of Christians to bless God with their lips? And what are some of the specific ways that you bless God on a regular basis? So just a quick recap. The word bless, what did we say? What was that, that term that we tend to think about when we look at the Greek term and the English term? Michael, did you have your hand up? Yes, sir. What, what was the word? Uh, a, like a good word. A good word. A eulogy, right? So, hey, you guys, you know what? This, this will really throw your parents for a whirl. Um, say, Mom, I, I have a eulogy to tell you. Dad, I, I have a eulogy for you. They'll look at you and be like, who died? What? A eulogy? And you can say, yeah, I have a good word for you. I want to praise my brother or my friend or the meal that you cooked or what have you. That would really blow their mind, I think. Y'all should, should do that. You know, tomorrow when you're working cattle, say, you know, Dad, I've got a eulogy for you here. Uh, and he, he won't know what to say. Um, anyways, though. So, why should it be the natural instinct for Christians to say a good word about God? And we even mentioned this in the sermon. Unbelievers do this, right? Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, Jews. 
though they have false conceptions of God, it's still pretty natural. If you believe in a God, and you believe that, that, that you have some sort of, might not be that personal relationship, depending on what religion we're talking about here, but you at least have some relationship with this God, and you want to appease the God or the gods, plural, so you say good things about them. Why do you think that should be natural for Christians to do? Think about that. Like when you when you say good things about God, why why does that just happen? Michael, your hand went up first. Right, you're being ungrateful, right? You want to be grateful. You're grateful. Why would we be grateful for what God's done? Because He has saved us. Saved us when we didn't deserve it. He gives us. Made us. He made us. He gives us things, right? He gives us shelter and friends and food and and jobs and skills and all sorts of things. So it's just natural, right? Like when we realize God created all things, He created me. And then he saved me from his wrath. He saved me from the penalty of my sin. God did all that for me? How can I not be grateful for that? I get to enjoy this delicious meal, these friends, this family, my church, whatever the case may be. Like I get to experience all these blessings from the God who made me and has sustained me for as long as I've been alive for a purpose. The natural instinct should be praise, should it not be? It's clear. Now, what are some ways that you find yourself saying good words about God, praising God? Let's get practical for a second here. Or what should be some ways, though? Giving thanks to Him. Yeah, giving thanks to Him, right? Prayer, song. What else? What are you doing when you share the gospel? Are you telling them about how bad God is and you should believe in Him because He's just so awful? No, right? When you, when sharing the gospel is blessing God in many ways. You're saying, hey, listen, like, you know, you and I, like, we deserve to go to this place called hell because we've violated God's law and we failed to be the men and women He's called us to be. But, you know, God is so good that despite we don't deserve it, and we could never earn it in and of ourselves. God extends forgiveness, mercy, and grace to all who call upon Jesus Christ in faith. And he does that. You want to know why he does that, friend, family member, teammate, whoever you're talking to about God in this context? He does that because he loves us. And then you go to scriptures to show that's the case. You know, that's that, that really gets to the epicenter of what it means to say a, a eulogy about God, a, a blessing about God. Share the gospel. Give thanks, as Whit said. Um, how, many, how many of you guys have heard somebody share their testimony before? That's blessing God, right? Look at what God did to get me from where I used to be to now. Some practical ways right there. Testimonies, gospel, singing, praying to God, thanks. Ellie? I feel like when we use what He's given us wisely mm. in a way, Through our lifestyle. Yeah, so you know the, the old saying, actions speak louder than words, and this gets back to the lordship thing. Anybody can pay lip service to God or, or plurality of gods. Um, 
depending on what religion you're talking about, but when your lifestyle matches what you profess to believe, that gets to the, to the meat and potatoes, really. Guys, there are literally, let me just say this right now. This, this would sometimes get me in trouble, but um, I, I really don't have any concerns about that at this point, so I'll say it anyways. There are more people who profess to be saved right now in this world than actually are. There are more false converts than there are people who've been born again. You want to know how I know that? Because I look at the pattern of life that's being emulated by the vast majority of people who profess faith in Jesus Christ. I look at the theological beliefs that they hold to and the biannual state of theology surveys that are conducted by Ligonier, other Pew Research, Crossway, other groups like that. Like, guys, like this, this again, lordship, what Ellie was saying about um, blessing God through how you live your life. Like, guys, we live in a day where so many people, particularly in our nation, so many people profess to believe in God and to love God and to serve God, but they either deny those claims by virtue of willfully holding to a heretical doctrine, or, and this is typically the more common notion, their lifestyle looks nothing like a follower of Christ should look. Right, Matthew 7, 15 and following, Jesus says that you can know somebody by their fruit. The fruit reveals everything. John MacArthur, time and truth go hand in hand. You give it enough time, you'll see who they truly are in due course. That's a reality. So, blessing God with our lives. Very good, Ellie, I like that. Uh, and then again, it kind of ties in to that idea of lordship that we were talking about with the first question. Does that all make sense to you guys? <coughs> Very good. And just so you know, a hey, perfect example. I professed to be a Christian my whole life. I didn't get saved until I was 17. I was baptized three times, and only the third one was a valid baptism. So I'm a living testimony of the fact that, hey, just because you're baptized, just because you profess to know God, doesn't mean anything, really. I mean, it could mean it could mean something, but it doesn't in and of itself mean anything. Could be self-deceived. Could be a false convert. Number three. Why is it such a serious transgression to direct abusive speech towards other people? Let's start there. What was the? If we looked at the text tonight, what was James's reason for why it was a problem? What? Because they're made in God's image. That's perfect. So second part of question three. And this is kind of self-explanatory, I think, but uh, love to hear your thoughts, of course. How should our understanding of the image of God influence the way we treat our neighbors? What do you think? What again? Uh, Still an old thunder? <laughs> we should treat our neighbors as ourselves because... They were made in God's image. Yeah. This is yeah, you know, I think that's Jesus was such he was a genius, right? Obviously, he was, yeah. he was God incarnate. But um, you know, when Jesus says, "Love your neighbor as yourself," you know, Jesus knew, hey, you're going to have no problem loving yourself 
right? We're all naturally selfish, self-centered. Um, so what Jesus is saying is, hey, I want you to take as much concern for other people as you do for yourself. And if you do that, you'll really love people the way that I've called you to love them. If you put as much thought and effort into the concerns and the cares of other people as you do for yourself, you're going to love people as I've called you to love people. You're going to love your fellow image bearer, your neighbor, in the way that I've called you to do so. Um, so yeah, very good. And this is, by the way, this is kind of, I won't preach a sermon on this. Maybe someday I will, uh, but not tonight. This is why we're pro-life, not pro-choice. You know what I mean when I say pro-life, right? We are, we are anti-abortion. I've heard it said like this, we are pro from the womb to the tomb. All life is valuable. All life has dignity. All life is worthy of being protected and preserved and respected because we're so great. No, because God has stamped his image upon us. He's made us into his likeness. Therefore, we value all life. We protect all life. We preserve all life intrinsically valuable because we say it is no because God has said that it is God and God's word is our authority for that particular view so image of God impacting how we treat our neighbor even those who have not yet been born even little Izzy who's very much alive very much created in the image of God even now um, so we are we are very much pro-life question four the second part of question four is what I want y'all to meditate on for the rest of this week. So we'll, we'll talk about the first part of question four, and then I want you to meditate on the second part of question four. That's your, that's your takeaway. Takeaway point to meditate on. In light of Scripture's depiction of the Christian life being a spiritual war, how should believers view their process of sanctification? And then the thing that I want you to think about I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands or to spill the beans about your private life, but this is between you and the Lord. Second part of question four. How does your current perspective on sanctification relate to what we've considered during tonight's lesson? And this really gets to the very end of the lesson about sanctification. But first off, let's define sanctification. What do we mean when we say sanctification? Ellie. Becoming more like God. Becoming more like God, right? Becoming more like Jesus Christ, who was the perfect model of how God has called us to live. That's exactly right. Sanctification is a process, right? Um, so, how should we view sanctification in light of everything James has said? And then I quoted the passage from Paul in Ephesians 6 about the armor of God. We think of our spiritual life, our battle against our tongue. We view that as a war, as an ongoing fight. What should that do in how we view our sanctification? With I think we should, uh, as you were talking about, like a war. We should battle our temptations, and mm -hmm. we should um, fight for control over our body from the flesh. That's right. How many of you guys have heard the "Let go, let God"? Y'all ever heard that before? Yeah, that was around when I was y'all's age and younger. I've heard that my whole life. Um, so that, a lot of people take that approach to sanctification, unfortunately. And that couldn't be any further from Scripture. It is by God's grace 
that we are able to have victory over sin and that we're able to advance in our sanctification. But God uses, hear this, God uses our, our effort. He uses our, um, our wisdom. He uses our devotion in fighting against sin and battling against temptation. He uses all of that as part of the means to get us further along in sanctification. Stephen Lawson said it this way, Justification, the act of a sinner being declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Justification is monergistic. That is, it's a work God does alone. Okay? So justification is all of God. Sanctification is synergistic. God's grace is what propels the Christian forward in their effort and their devotion to put off the deeds of the flesh, to put off the lust of the flesh, to put away temptation, to fight against it, and to press on. Remember what we talked about in the sermon. We're not alone. God's given us the Holy Spirit to fight against temptation and to help us be made in the likeness of Christ. He's given us other believers to encourage us and to pray for us. So we are very, very fortunate to have such an ample amount of resource. We have the Word of God to give us instruction and to give us perspective on how we're supposed to be battling against sin and temptation, our sinful patterns of speech and so on. Insert any category of lifestyle or sin here. So my question for all of us to consider, again, we're not going to have a survey here tonight, but here's my question. When you think about your battle, when I think about my battle against sinful desires against how I use my tongue, how I engage with other people through my speech pattern. Do I view it with this kind of diligence? Or do I kind of just shrug my shoulder and say, you know, just so hard. I just can't, I can't grow. I'm not having much success. And plus, saved by God's grace, so I mean, I think I'll just kind of live how, how I'm living right so that's something for us to meditate on, guys. Remember, we can, all, we can all live in such a way that doesn't always reflect who we are, which is us and God. So that's why I really want us, I say us because I'm preaching to myself here, I really want us to think about this throughout the rest of this week. Am I truly pursuing sanctification in my life, and even more narrowly as it pertains to the way we use our tongue, the way that our speech pattern fleshes itself out on a day-by-day basis? Am I really guarding what comes out of my mouth? Am I trying to grow here? So I'll leave you with that thought, and myself with that thought. Let's close in prayer, and then I'll wrap up our time together tonight, and by extension, our study of the sixth section in James 1. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know from the earliest pages of Scripture that you have created all things very good, and in your perfectly wise and holy plan, you established every detail of reality so that you would be able to reveal yourself through all of creation and to supremely magnify your glorious character. And God, as we find in Genesis and as we've seen reiterated in the verses we've studied tonight in James, we find that the crown jewel of creation itself was mankind bearing your very likeness. 
God, we could never begin to know or understand why it pleased you to create humanity in your image and to function as your representatives throughout all the earth. God, that is such a mystery to us, but it is such a glorious mystery. One that I pray will cause us all to exalt our hearts in worship and adoration to you, to bless you with our tongues, as it were, to speak good words unto you. And Father, we ask that we would be those who routinely ask for your forgiveness when we commit sin against you, especially when we sin through the use of our tongue. Lord, help us to grow in our tendencies to not speak in such a way that contradicts who we are in Jesus Christ. Father, that we would be equally committed to blessing your great name and building up our neighbors with our pattern of speech. And lastly, God, if there's anybody here tonight, either a present person or listening to this recording that has not come to a saving relationship with you, then I pray, Father, that you would use all the truths we've discussed tonight, both in the sermon and in the group discussion time, that, we, that you would use those truths to convict them of their sin and to point them to the one name given under heaven whereby sinful man can be saved. And we, of course, know that that name is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. We thank you for this time together tonight. I thank you for all the people who are routinely a part of this study and these fellowship gatherings. I pray for your rich blessing upon them and their families. You keep them safe as they leave here tonight and that you would continue to bind our hearts together to deepen our love for one another and our love for you as often as we have opportunities to gather together. We pray all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, together with your Holy Spirit.